You're listening to audio from New City Church in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. We are a gospel-centered church with a heart for the next generation, passionate about making disciples who will renew our city in the real Jesus. For more information about New City, please visit our website at www.mynewcity.church. All right. Good morning, New City. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 5. Nehemiah, chapter 5. My name is Caleb. Uh, I appreciate you coming this morning, and uh, I appreciate the opportunity to bring God's Word. We're going to be in Nehemiah, chapter 5. We've been working our way through the book of Nehemiah for several weeks now, Ezra before that. Um, but it, it's been a couple weeks since we've been in Nehemiah, so let's just do a quick recap. What is actually going on here in Nehemiah? So if you remember, the people of Israel had been in captivity in Persia, okay? They were taken captive by the Babylonians into Babylon, and now the Persians have come in, and so now there is a Persian king. That happened at about 586 BC, okay? So they're in captivity for about 150 years during, uh, until this time. Now, Nehemiah has returned to Jerusalem, okay? And when he does, he returns to rebuild the temple because it had been destroyed, and to now they're working on the city walls, okay? So they're back in Jerusalem, Israel's uh, capital city, but they immediately start facing problems. And we've seen some of these problems already in Nehemiah. They're attacked from the outside, right? Because there's foreigners that live there now, and they don't want they don't want the Jews to come back and rebuild the temple. So they're facing uh, conflict from outside. Um, and they actually had to strap swords onto themselves as they built the city, right, to protect themselves. But today, we're going to see how conflict also comes from within. Okay, there's, there's going to be problems that they're going to have to deal with as uh, God's chosen people. But before we read our passage, let's ask the question, why does this matter? Why does Nehemiah go back to Jerusalem? What is he trying to accomplish here? Now, this gets to the heart of really understanding the Old Testament, and I want to start this way because it's very important that we understand what God's original design was for his people. You see, in Exodus chapter 19, we're told this, you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, this is God speaking, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, okay? For all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So this is God at the very beginning, right? He's talking to Moses here, and God is saying, you Israelites are gonna be my treasured possession, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, who, what, what's a priest? What does a priest do? A priest, in that context, was someone who stands in between, right? They, they, they intercede for God to the people, or they intercede even for the people to God. The priest is the one who would go into the temple and offer the sacrifices to make atonement for the people to bring their relationship to God back together, okay? So here we're told that the entire nation of Israel is to be a kingdom of priests, 
And right before that, God says, all the earth is mine. So what's going on here? You see, God's original design for the people of Israel was that they would be his chosen people and they would be as a priesthood to the rest of the world. That God would reveal himself to his people, that he, as they, obe- as they lived in obedience and love to him, the, the outside world would see what a blessing it was to worship the one true God, and they too would turn to God and join them. They were to be a light to the nations, okay? The priesthood, a kingdom of priests, so that the world could see God's glory and turn to him. That's God's original design. That's why Nehemiah goes back to Jerusalem because that's not happening, right? They're in captivity. They are facing God's judgment. So they gotta get back. They gotta build the temple because they know that's where God's glory dwells. So over and over we see though how the people of Israel have failed throughout the the entire Old Testament They failed to live up to this expectation, right? God was not the one who failed. The people of Israel fail. But God, because he is so merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, he continually, throughout the Old Testament, continues to raise up leaders to call his people back to repentance. Okay, so we we see this over and over, this pattern, God raising up a leader, a priest-like person to stand in the gap, calling Israel back to himself, back to their first love so that they can be a light to the nations. We have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, all the judges, King David, all the prophets, right? All of these people, that's their role, to call people back to God. And now, it's Nehemiah. That's what Nehemiah is about. God has raised up Nehemiah, placed him in Jerusalem for this task. So, Nehemiah is now God's appointed leader. So the question I want us to ask today, what are the characteristics of a godly leader? You might be saying, what, why do I care? I'm a college student, right? I'm not, I'm not a pastor of a church, I'm not a CEO, I don't have any grand designs about leading people or anything like that. But listen friends, just because you're not standing on stage doesn't mean you're not a leader. You, we are all called to lead. We're called to lead ourselves first, right? Second, if you're a man, you, you're gonna lead a family someday, most likely. If you're a woman, you, you're gonna lead a family with your husband one day. And who knows what God might have for you. I never thought I would be here preaching in front of people. I never thought I would have the leadership opportunities I've had in my life. And so the the fact is we all need to understand what does a godly leader look like. So with all of this in mind, let's turn to Nehemiah chapter five. If you would, please stand with me. I don't think it's gonna be on the screen because it's really long. Um, Let's stand as we read God's word. Nehemiah chapter five. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters we are many. 
So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out of the fold of my garment and said, may God so shake out every man from this house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of, of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall and we acquired no land and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now, what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox, six choice sheep and birds and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Give light to our eyes now. Help us to understand it rightly and may your spirit shape us into the likeness of Christ. In his name we pray, amen. amen. Five characteristics of a godly leader. Five characteristics of a godly leader from this passage. First, I want us to see a godly leader listens to the cries of his people. A godly leader listens to the cries of his people, verses one through five. We're not gonna read it again, but this is what we see here. Nehemiah hears the cries of his people. 
A famine had come to the land. What's actually going, what's the problem here? It's kind of hard to understand. There's a famine in the land and many of the poor Israelites were unable to afford food to care for their families. That's important, okay? They're not wanting money to upgrade their donkeys, right? Because they have a, you know, this is the 450 BC donkey and the 449 BC donkey is like even a little bit bigger. I wanna upgrade my donkey, right? So I need to borrow some money. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that, okay? This is, this is not that. These people cannot afford to, to buy food for their families, okay? They're starving. They're not talking about living in luxury here. They couldn't, the text says they couldn't get grain so that they may stay alive. These are basic necessities. And then in verse four, we see there's also a tax that had been imposed on them from the king, because the king of Persia is still the king, even way over here, remember that. Okay, they couldn't afford to pay that tax. And what's gonna happen if the king, if you can't afford to pay the king's tax? He's gonna take you back, right? You're gonna go back and work as slaves for him. If you can't pay with money, you're gonna pay with service. So there's a huge need in the poor community right now in Israel. Uh, so what was happening was the more well-off Israelites, the richer ones who had some money were going to the poor and saying, hey, I got an idea. I will sell you grain so you can feed your family." And instead of giving me money, give me your field, or give me your vineyard, or give me your house. Now, if you're a father or a mother here and you have starving children at home and someone comes to you with that deal, what are you going to say? I'll do anything, right? <laughs> of course. What, what, what can you say? You're going to say yes. And then what happens to this relationship that was supposed to be between brothers, what has it become? Your fellow brother has now become your landlord. You are now living on his land. He'll let you stay there. He'll let you keep working your vineyard and your fields, but what you get belongs to him. And this is the result of this kind of transactional relationship, right? It wasn't wrong to buy things from people. It wasn't even wrong to loan people money in Israel. What was wrong was to take advantage of the poor in their destitute position, okay? So verse five says, now look, look at what has, has, has happened. Our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. We now belong to our brothers. And our children are as their children. We don't even own our own children anymore because we sold our own children to be slaves. The poor Israelites were being treated as if they belonged to the richer ones. So why was this wrong? Well, we've already talked a little bit about why it's wrong. It creates a, a transactional relationship where it's supposed to be a familial relationship. But it's also wrong, first and foremost, because it's a direct violation of God's law. Leviticus 25 says this, take no interest or profit from your brother, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired 
worker. He shall work for you as, a, as an employee, not as a slave. For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. They were in direct violation of Moses' law from Leviticus 25. So what does Moses command them not to do? Don't charge them interest. Don't sell them as slaves. Now, let this be a warning to us also as Christians. If we start looking at people created in the image of God through a transactional framework, we almost always begin to dehumanize them, don't we? This is why this was so such a, a, a bad idea. This is why God forbade it in the Old Testament. You are brothers. You are sisters. You are not a dollar sign, right? Don't treat one another that way. Psalm 34 says, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Proverbs 21 says, whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. A godly leader listens to the cries of his people. Nehemiah saw the need. He's a godly leader. He responds. How does he respond? So our second point, number two, he responds with appropriate emotion. Look in verse six. He responds with appropriate emotion. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. Nehemiah gets angry. Anger is not always an appropriate response, but in this case, it is. See, anger gets a bad rap in our day, probably rightly so. How many positive things have you heard said about anger? This is understandable, right, because of how dangerous anger can be. If you're anything like me, you have a sordid, messy past with anger, right? Uh, most of the time, we don't get anger right. Sometimes our anger is misplaced. We get angry about things that should not anger us. If you're here and you have children, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? We're angry because we're annoyed. We're angry because we're bothered and inconvenienced by having to do something that we weren't planning on doing, right? Our anger is misplaced, or maybe we're angry because we don't get something we feel like we're entitled to, right? I stayed at a hotel this past week for a few days. My hotel room was not up to what I thought it should have been, and I was paying a lot of money to stay there. I didn't have any washcloths, and that kind of bothered me. Don't worry, I still showered. Um, but things like that, you know, it's like, ah, oh, there's this, I'm kind of getting angry right now. I'm paying a lot of money to stay here, right? We feel like you're entitled to something and you don't get it. We get angry. It's misplaced anger. Or maybe our anger is out of proportion, right? Maybe we explode with anger or we lash out at others because of the smallest infraction. Again, parents, you know what I'm talking about? Maybe anger has taken over our personality so much that we are known as an angry person. And people have to walk on eggshells around us. You ever known anyone like that? If you don't, it might be you. It's common to hear things like this. When we're at our angriest, we're at our stupidest. 
And this is probably true a lot of times, right? How many dumb decisions have you made out of anger? I can name just a couple. Anger leads to hurtful, damaging words, physical violence, abuse, resentment, lifelong grudges, and even murder. This is what happens when our anger is out of proportion. So sometimes our anger is misplaced. Sometimes our anger is out of proportion. But the flip side, maybe, maybe we're not angry enough. You ever thought about that? Perhaps there are things that should anger us, but don't. You see, anger is the flip side of love. If you love someone, you will get angry when that person is wronged or mistreated. That anger is a good and righteous anger. If you're a husband and someone is attempting to hurt your wife, you better get angry. and You better do something about it. And if you don't, you don't love your wife. Same way with children, same way with the poor, same way with those who are weak and vulnerable. You'd better get angry. Anger is the proper response to injustice against those we love. A great analogy, this isn't really talking about injustice, but I, listened, I used to listen to Dave Ramsey a lot. I don't know if you know Dave Ramsey, big financial guru guy, right? He's at a radio show for many years. He gives out advice, people that call in like, yeah, I've got $4 trillion in debt. Well, you know, wh- where did I go wrong? He's like, well, you took out $4 trillion in debt, right? Um, <laughs> So people call him with their questions, and so he gives advice. And one of the things that stuck with me, because this, this um, applies to a lot of different areas in our life, okay, that how, how useful anger is. What he says, one of the keys to getting out of debt is that you have to get angry at your debt. That's how it starts. Until people get to the point where they have an emotional, visceral response to their financial bondage, they often will not be able to follow through with any kind of plan. You see, anger can be a gift from God. For Nehemiah, it is the proper response to the injustice and the rebellion that he sees happening in Israel. His anger is not misplaced, it's not disproportionate, he's not out of control, and he's angry about the right things. But he doesn't just respond with anger. Our third point, he responds with truth. A godly leader upholds God's righteous standards. A godly leader upholds God's righteous standards. Look in verse seven. He says, I took counsel with myself. I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers and have been sold, who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you've been exacting from them. So Nehemiah upholds God's righteous standards. He deals with the problem head on with truth and boldness. He calls a great assembly and he calls out the sin. 
This was a public sin and it called for a public rebuke. Not all sin is public like this and not all sin needs to be aired in public. In fact, most sin does not. We're not gonna, we're not gonna come up here on stage and start confessing all of our deepest, darkest secrets, right? But this was a public sin. Everybody knew it, everybody saw it was happening, multiple people were involved, it called for a public rebuke. Nehemiah does not mince words, he doesn't hem and haw around it, he doesn't try to soften the blow by dressing it up or couching it in flowery, flowery language. No, he points right to the problem. You are doing this. You are exacting interest from your brother. You are selling your brothers. Then he pronounces judgment. The thing that you are doing is not good. It is evil. It is wicked. And then he even takes it a step further and he cuts to the heart. He says in verse 9, Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God? You see, the problem was that they did not fear God. To fear God in this sense is to live in humble reverence towards him, displayed in obedience to his moral law. You see, fearing God isn't an internal emotion. It's not a mental disposition to think of God in a favorable light. It's not singing worship songs. Fearing God is not doing religious activities. Fearing God is walking in moral obedience to his written word for his glory and for the good of others. This is very important for us to understand, church, especially when it comes to leadership. If we're gonna live the lives that are honoring to our God, what is the standard we are holding ourselves and other people to? What's the standard? The written word of God. Nehemiah is calling Israel back, obey the law of God given to Moses. That's the standard. It's not Nehemiah's opinion. It doesn't matter what the other nations are doing. It's not some kind of combination or synthesis, right, of, well, we'll take kind of this standard from God, but then, you know, the other nations are kind of doing this, so we'll, we'll just find some sort of middle ground here, right? That's so often what we do. That is not the standard, friends. The standard of holiness is complete and full obedience to God's revealed word. Another way of saying they didn't fear God was to say they didn't love God. They didn't see him as precious and powerful. They didn't think it was that big of a deal to violate his law. This is so important for us today because we live in a time where God's holy standards are laughed at, are they not? You know, we've heard a lot about injustice these past few years, haven't we? Whether it's systemic racism or police brutality or obeying your governing authorities or gang violence in the streets or the murder of unborn children or almost any other issue plaguing our culture. But where do we get our standards of justice, friends? We don't define justice the way that the world defines it. Sometimes they get it right. Sometimes they don't. 
we must return to the written, revealed law of God. He has told us what justice is, okay? Don't let the world synthesize the word of God with some other lower standard of justice. God has given us standards of morality in his word and we are called to take those standards, apply them to ourselves and to the world in which we live. So we call people and say, this is God's holy standard. This is what is required. Now you might say, but Caleb, these are different times, come on. The Bible doesn't have much to say about things happening now. And we're talking about the law of Moses here. Moses, 3,000 years ago, God gave him this law. But friends, what is the law of God? It is a reflection of his holy character. And God's holy character never changes, friends, never changes. So we must repeatedly return to the scriptures and conform our standards of holiness to God's standards. But notice the second half of the problem. Ought you not to walk in the fear of God? Why? To prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies. This is why, again, why I started the way that I did. One of the primary purposes of Israel's existence, of settling them into the land and establishing them as a nation was so the surrounding nations would look over at them and see how they have been blessed with fruitfulness and prosperity and that the nations would turn to God and marvel, right? What a great nation who has such righteous laws. What a God they must serve. But when God's people abandon God's law and they take on the habits and the customs and practices of the world, they become a laughing stock. They make God look like a joke. That's why Nehemiah is angry. He's concerned for the glory of God. Now, before we leave this point, there's one more, thing I, one more point I wanna make here. What does Nehemiah call them to do? Look at verse 11. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. I was thinking about this this week. This didn't just happen one day, and then Nehemiah corrected it the next day. What we're reading here happened over the course of years, friends. It started with a couple people selling their fields, a couple people charging interest, a couple people selling their sons and daughters as slaves, and then before you know it, compounds, and then there's more, and then there's more. And what does Nehemiah say here? Stop it immediately. And the people say, we're gonna do it. We're gonna stop it immediately. Now, how do you think that process went? <laughs> you want to talk about a mess, right? Who owns what? Who's died? Whose parents have died so their kids are now alive? Who owns this land? Who owns this grain? You, did, you know the, the confusion and chaos this would have caused? Nehemiah doesn't, he doesn't care. 
obey. Get back to God's law. He throws a wrecking ball, boom, into the entire system. Sometimes, friends, you can deal with sin piece by piece. Sometimes. But sometimes the whole thing's got to come down. Nehemiah is throwing a wrecking ball into the life of the people of Israel. And this, friends, has a lot to say to us today. Is this not how God deals with us? Has he ever destroyed your life? I've been there. Just strips away everything you thought you loved, everything you thought was good, that you were striving for, and he says, here's a wrecking ball, boom. This is what God does to those he loves. He takes a wrecking ball to your life so that no stone is left unturned. This is what our good father does to his children. Where is God bringing the wrecking ball to your life? Where does it need to be? But take heart, because the God who brings the wrecking ball to our lives, he won't leave us in the rubble. He doesn't leave us there. Number four, a godly leader desires restoration. He desires restoration. Look in verse 12. And they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said amen and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. What a great picture of national repentance. We're gonna do it, we don't care. We don't care about the confusion and the chaos it's gonna cause, we'll figure it out. Let the chips fall where they may. We've gotta get back, we've gotta get back to God's holy standard. This is the proper response to rebuke, friends. The people turn from sin and they recommit to obeying God's law. This must always be the goal of godly leadership, the restoration of the sinner, not their eternal condemnation. This has huge implications for us as we think about leadership, especially in the church. We don't just want to expose sin. Oh, how fun it is sometimes, right? To point it out. We don't just name it. That's important, we need to name it. We do those things, but we do them with a tone and a heart that desires restoration that's gonna change how you go about it, friends, isn't it? We do it with love and gentleness and humility. Yes, there are times when we need to be more bold and more firm and blunt. But even if that's the case, we do it with a desire to see people turn from sin and return to the worship of the Lord. Jesus tells us there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. One sinner who repents, that's what we want to see. You leave the 99, you go get that one. And when you get them, oh, what joy there is. That's easy, as I'm talking about all this to put ourselves into Nehemiah's position, right? We're talking about leadership, after all, right? So we, okay, if I was Nehemiah, what would I do? How would I do this as a leader? 
But if we're honest with ourselves, we, we might realize that more often than not, we're not the ones confronting sin. We're the ones who need to be confronted, don't we? So think about how you would like others to approach you. With a pointed finger and condemnation? Man, I'm good at that. I can do that. Or would you rather with a, be approached with a spirit of gentleness, brotherly love? It says, come on, brother. Be restored. Be restored. That leads me to the last thing I want to say, I want us to see about godly leadership, which is godly leaders lead by example. Godly leaders lead by example. Verses 17 and 18. We're not going to read all of that, but basically it says this. Nehemiah leads by examples. He says, he, I'm not exacting interest. I have a food allowance of the governor, the previous governor's used to lord that over the people. They didn't share anything, but what does Nehemiah say? There were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox, six sheep and birds, every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. I did, for yet all of this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor. So again, what he's saying is, I don't treat people this way, friends. Follow my example. I'm generous. Give freely. If your brother's in need, give him some money. If your brother's in need, give him a cow, right? Let him eat and rejoice. We don't have to exact interest from one another. Nehemiah leads by example. He did so at his own expense. This kind of leader is rare, is it not? in our day of celebrities and political showmanship, and it's a rare thing to see a leader deliberately lowering himself and living sacrificially among the people. Nehemiah sets the example. He doesn't call his people to do anything he himself has not done, and may we strive to lead by his example. Now, I began this message talking about how Nehemiah was God's appointed servant. He was the one God chose for that time to stand in the gap for the nation of Israel. He calls the people to repentance. He governs them with truth and justice. He puts his life on the line to see people, the people of God redeemed. He did all of these things as an example for us to follow. He's a great example for godly leadership. But Nehemiah was not perfect. He was a sinner. And even his leadership was not enough to keep Israel on the right track. We're going to see this as we go through Nehemiah. We're going to return to this fact that the book of Nehemiah does not end well. Because we know what happens. The people of God continue to rebel. There's still something wrong. There's still something missing. You see, Nehemiah was a type. He was a foreshadowing of the one who would later come. Everything is still pointing towards this Messiah who would come. And finally, about 400 years later, he comes. This was Jesus. And church, Jesus gives us the ultimate example of godly leadership. You see, Jesus' leadership is unparalleled. 
It is ultimate. It is the pinnacle of godly leadership. You see, Jesus hears the cries of his people. In Luke 18, the blind beggar cries out to Jesus, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus heals him. In Matthew 15, a Canaanite woman, a, a wicked, uh, lived outside of the people of God, a Canaanite woman, impure, cries out to Jesus, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Jesus heals her daughter in an instant. He hears the cries of his people. Jesus responds with appropriate emotion. See, in the Gospels we read of how Jesus, upon entering the temple in Jerusalem, fashioned a whip and he drove out those who were buying and selling in the temple. He was jealous for the dwelling place of his father. Jesus got angry appropriately. He also repeatedly condemns the religious leaders of his day because they love to present an appearance of godliness without actually having a love for God or his people. He curses them. He calls them whitewashed tombs. He rebukes them publicly. He responds appropriately emotionally, but we also see how Jesus responds to those who come to him for mercy. In Matthew 9, we read how Jesus was filled with compassion because his people were without a shepherd. In Matthew 11, he calls people to come to him and lay their burdens down so he can give them rest. He feeds thousands with miracles. He heals the sick and disabled. He casts out demons and he is gentle to those whose faith is weak. We have a savior who responds emotionally to us. But Jesus also upholds God's holy standards. In John 6, we read, or, or sorry, Matthew 5, we, we, Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. This entire Old Testament that we skip over a lot of times, Jesus didn't skip over it. I've not come to abolish this, but to fulfill it. Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, that's a small Greek letter, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Not one dot passes away from this, friends. God's holy standard perseveres. He didn't come to get rid of it. We don't just throw it out because now we live under grace. No, Jesus didn't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. Jesus desires restoration. Remember Nehemiah? He, he, he desired restoration, so does Jesus. The entire Bible is a story of restoration, friends. From beginning to end. But restoration from what? If you're here today and you're overwhelmed by your sin and your failures, do you know that you're a lawbreaker? Do you feel the weight of God's judgment upon you? because you don't live up to his holy standards. Don't run from that reality today, friends. Don't harden your heart. If you know that now, and the Spirit is saying that to you, don't run. Sit there for a moment. Let the weight of your sin become a reality to you, because it is true. You feel the weight pressing down your guilty conscience. Remember that wrecking ball I mentioned earlier? How does God use that wrecking ball in our lives? 
But here's what the wrecking ball sounds like. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together we have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Or how about this? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Are you unrighteous today, friends? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That's a wrecking ball for us, friends. It should invade your life and cause you to say, well then who gets in? What do I do? That's what it sounds like when the wrecking ball hits your life. We're guilty, we failed. We stand condemned under the wrath of a holy God. But thanks be to God. He has made a way of escape for us. You see our Lord is a restoring savior. When Jesus was crucified 2,000 years ago, he actually bore the sin of his people. That wrecking ball, that wrath that was meant for you, Jesus took on the cross, friends. That's what this is about. From start to finish, the restoring Savior takes the punishment for us. And now this day, 2,000 years later, anyone who turns from sin and trusts in Jesus will be saved. That's it. You can know this restoration today. That passage I just read from 1 Corinthians all of these things, idolaters, adulterers, thieves, greedy, drunkards, you're not gonna inherit the kingdom of God. What's the next sentence? And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the spirit of our God. First Peter 3.18 says, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He is a restoring God, friends. And last, Jesus leads by example. First Peter 2 says, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. Church, may we develop these godly leadership traits as we lead others towards great faithfulness. But every time we look to ourselves, may we look 10 times to Jesus. He is our good and faithful shepherd. The Lord is our shepherd, we shall not want. He makes us lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside still waters. He restores our souls. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us. There is such great work to be done. So many people in this city that don't know Jesus. So much to lead. So much to be developed. So much work for us to do. And we must do it. You have called us to it. 
But Father, what a great hope we have in Jesus that we are not left alone, but we have been redeemed, bought with the precious blood of Christ. And so now I pray for those in this room, Father, that we would be overwhelmed, that our salvation, the atoning sacrifice of our Savior would would just fall fresh on us today. That we would know that we are forgiven, we would be empowered to lead out in gospel ministry to which you have called us in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to enter a time now where we respond to what we've heard. Uh, We do this in, in different ways here at New City, but we want to be faithful to respond appropriate to what the Lord is saying to us. And so the way that we do this here at New City is we're going to observe the Lord's Supper. Before we do that, we're gonna reflect on what we've heard. What has the Spirit been just just kind of bringing to your memory today? Something that you heard, something from God's Word. What is He doing in you? Reflect on that this morning. We wanna remember. Remember what? Remember the Gospel, friends. Remember that Christ has died He is risen from the dead, and we have a hope in him. And Then I want us to rehearse. We rehearse as we sing. So we're going to take the Lord's Supper. The way that we do that is there's baskets up here in the front or one in the back. Um, Reflect for just a few moments, and when you're ready, come and take the elements and um, the, the, the bread and the cup symbolize the body and the blood of Jesus that was shed for us. And then we're going to close with a song. When you're ready, please come.